When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, writer Erica Fatland takes us on a journey of a few thousand miles across 14 nations while tracking the path of just one country's border, one that stretches from Eastern Europe to Asia and on to Alaska and the US too, asking, what is it like living so close to Russia? Here's our host, Catherine Hughes, producer on the Intelligence Squared podcast. Norwegian travel writer Erica Fatland joins me now to talk about her book, The Border, a journey around Russia through North Korea, China, Mongolia, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Estonia, Finland, Norway, and the Northeast Passage. Erica, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much. I want to start your journey in North Korea, which is a country I assume the least number of our listeners will have traveled to. And it's not a country that people might immediately assume of being influenced by Russia, but this isn't the case. So I was wondering if you could tell me how the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Soviet Union has affected and created the North Korea that we know today. So um, the border between North Korea and Russia is the shortest of the borders with Russia. It's only about 19 kilometers. It's a very short border. Today, the Chinese border, China is much more important influencing North Korea. But historically, no country has influenced the North Korea that we know today as much as uh, Russia or the Soviet Union. 
Because in 1945, the Korean Peninsula was divided between the US and the Soviet Union. So the Japanese had lost the war. And then in Moscow, one started searching for a puppet who could rule Pyongyang kind of on behalf of the Soviet Union. And then they found this uh, 33-year-old man who had not spent much time in Korea at all. He had, like many Koreans, spent his childhood uh, in exile in China. And then he spent the war in Siberian military camps. He also spoke Russian. He did not speak um, Korean very well. So before he had, he was giving his first speech to the Korean people. He had to receive intensive training from a Soviet uh, officer. And this man was Kim Il-sung. So the plan to control North Korea through this man did not work out very well. I mean, in fact, Kim Il-sung, he survived six general secretaries of the Soviet Union, and he even survived the Soviet Union himself. And when he died in 1994, he had transformed North Korea into a hereditary dictatorship. And today it is his grandson who is ruling this country like a big concentration camp. That's fascinating. So Kim Il-sung was Kim Jong-un's grandfather. Did you get any inclination as to what North Koreans think about Russia today or why they think communism works for them, but it didn't work for the Russians or for the Soviet Union? Well, in fact, there was a Russian on my tour group when I visited North Korea because um, I did not go there as a journalist. It's very difficult to get the journalist visa as I went there as a tourist and joined the tour group. And this Russian, he was so fascinated uh, visiting North Korea. He said that they are making all the mistakes uh, that we made. Now, I wouldn't really agree to call North Korea communist regime because it really isn't. It's a dictatorship. They are totally controlling the people. Uh, but their uh, ideology is not really communism. It is more a religion where the people are worshipping the leaders. Russia was planning to do some investments in North Korea. Um, and I w when I was there, I could see the bridge, uh, the railway bridge, which crosses the border river and continues to Vladivostok. And they had some plans using the harbor in the north of North Korea. But then Russia has, like all Western countries, joined the sanctions against North Korea. So these plans are stopped at the moment. So relations between North Korea and Russia now, how do they stand? Well, there are a lot of North Korean, call them slave workers, working in Russia. I think the number is actually about 50,000. So that's quite a lot. But these slaves, these workers, they are very controlled. And this is a big export of North Korea. They are exporting slaves to many undemocratic countries in the world. Apart from that, there is not much contact between Moscow and Pyongyang at the moment. So when you left North Korea, you went to China. One of your first stops was in Harbin. I'd only ever heard of Harbin. I know it's very, very cold. It's very, very northern. It's very close to the border. And they have this big ice festival in the winter where they build monumental palaces out of ice. But it's actually a very Russian town. Could you tell me about the influence and the history there? So what many people probably don't know is that at the end of the 19th century, most of Manchuria was actually controlled by the Russian Empire. And then Harbin was founded by Russians. And the beginning of the 20th century, Harbin was known as the most cosmopolitan 
metropolitan city in China. There were a lot of Jews moving there. I mean, it was a very international city and a very Russian city. And even today, if you visit Harbin, you can see the traces of this Russian influence. There is a Russian church, there is a Russian street. And today they have also built a Russian village where you can uh, actually meet real Russians. So they have employed some old ladies who work there. But that's kind of like a, a Disneyland, real Russian. They are there to play the part of a Russian, not living an authentic life there. Absolutely not. Uh, it's, it's like you say, it's a Disneyland. So today there are um, no Russians left. There are Chinese working in all those Russian shops. So it's more the whole city of Harbin. It's more like a Russian Disneyland now because... There is no real Russian influence in China anymore. So the balance has shifted totally from the 19th century when China was very weak and Russia took advantage of that. Uh, they you know, forced the emperor to sign some border treaties in the 1850s or 1860s. And by signing these treaties, uh, Russia uh, received 1 million square kilometers of Chinese land, including Vladivostok, uh, which is Russian today. So in the 19th century, Russia was the strong neighbor. Uh, today, that has shifted totally. And today, China is economically much, much stronger than Russia, and Russia does not have many friends left. So for Russia, China is now extremely important. And last year, China was the biggest trade partner of Russia, but this does not go the other way. So Russia is not the biggest trade partner for China. And we know that Russia is very keen in some instances to try and reclaim back land that has been given or taken by another nation? Has China ever tried to reclaim what Vladivostok is now? Well, they do call those two treaties that were signed in the 1850s, they call them in China the unjust treaties, as I don't think they're very happy about those treaties. Um, for now, I don't see any signs of China reclaiming land, but one could imagine that maybe a more nationalistic China in the future could try to reclaim this land. What they're doing for now is that they're renting a lot of land in um, East Russia. Leaving China, going to Mongolia, which is a very different way of life compared to what we're used to. So in 2020, a survey concluded that around one in four households in Mongolia live a nomadic lifestyle. But this number is shrinking and people are being forced to move into the cities. Why is this? Yes, Mongolia is one of the few countries where you can still meet full-time nomads, people who are nomad all year round. But as you said, yes, this number is shrinking uh, because of tough climate conditions. So quite often they have so tough winters in Mongolia that many nomads, they lose their whole livestock. It's simply too cold for the animals to find any food or to find any water. And then in Mongolia, the state will not really give any support for families who lose everything. So then they are on their own and they don't really have any other choice than moving to Ulaanbaatar. If I remember correctly, more than half of the inhabitants of Ulaanbaatar, they are not living in houses or apartments but they are living in yurt in the outskirts of the city. In Mongolia, everyone can put up their yurt anywhere. So this also makes Ulaanbaatar in the winter one of the most polluted cities on earth because, as you might imagine, it gets very, very cold in Ulaanbaatar during winter. And then these families who have moved to Ulaanbaatar, they are heating their yurt with charcoal. 
Wow, which I imagine creates a fair amount of smog. And Ulaanbaatar, it's kind of in a basin, so the smog just sits on top and it doesn't move for months. What does it look like to have what sounds like a semi-nomadic lifestyle? They're living in yurts, but they're by the city. How do they survive from day to day? Um, oh, that's a difficult question. It is, it is very difficult for many of them to survive. And they might have electricity, but most of them don't have running water, for instance. So they are living this, you might compare it to a slum. So it's a very big slum surrounding Ulaanbaatar. Would you say that the end of socialism had a negative effect on the organisation of Mongolia being able to live a nomadic life in terms of livestock herding? Has that contributed to it? Uh, well, I wouldn't say that life has gotten any easier, but probably it hasn't gotten any worse either because Mongolians suffered during the communist period. And even if it was not officially part of the Soviet Union, they did follow all politics of the Soviet Union. So in the 1930s, for instance, uh, they also had a state terror in Mongolia where uh, many uh, Buddhist monks were killed and also traditional shamans suffered. So what they tried to do in the Soviet period was to eradicate all traces of religion. So when I now visited Mongolia a few years back, I talked with monks who are now trying to restore this tradition, this religion in Buddhism, history of Buddhism in Mongolia goes back a very, very long time. And the monks I talked to, they had to go to Tibet or to India to study Buddhism because there was no one from whom they could learn about religion in Mongolia any longer. So the Russia-Kazakh border is the second longest in the world after America and Canada. You wrote that none of the other stands, so that's Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, experienced so much suffering and catastrophe during the 70 years of Soviet rule as Kazakhstan. And there's many parallels between Kazakhstan and Ukraine in the way that Soviet history has treated them, notably the famines imposed by the Soviet Union. But in the past decade, since the dissolution, they've taken very different routes how did Kazakhstan ultimately become a dictatorship? Yes, it's a good question. And that is a fate that many of the Central Asian countries have suffered. But just to talk a little bit more about the Soviet history of Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan was really one of the countries that suffered most during the Soviet experiment. I mean, like Mongolia, the Kazakhs, they were also nomads. And then Kazakhstan became part of the Russian Empire. It was one of the first Central Asian countries to become part of the Russian Empire. And that was in the 18th century. But uh, the Russian Empire uh, did not try to change the culture of the Kazakhs. They just wanted tribute tax. But then in the 1920s, the Russian Empire was transformed into the Soviet Union and then suddenly suddenly everything was about politics and also farming and the nomads, they could not live as they had done for generations any longer. They were forced to start living on these state farms, collective farms. And well, for one, these nomads, they had no experience working like a traditional farmer. And then secondly, there was a reason why people in Kazakhstan were living 
as nomads because it might look like a very rich country, uh, but actually it's very difficult to do any efficient farming there. So this ended in catastrophe. And during just a few years in the 1930s, one million Kazakhs died of hunger. And that is about 25% of the ethnic Kazakh um, population. So it's a huge catastrophe of which we can still see the consequences. And then it was also the test site of semi-Palantines where the Russians or the Soviets were testing their nuclear bombs. So it was a country that really suffered during the Soviet Union, but maybe not so much in the 1970s and 1980s. So there was no freedom movement in Kazakhstan. And there was no freedom movement in any other Central Asian countries either. But then Kazakhstan, like all the other Soviet republics, did become an independent country in 1991. And then they did the same in all the Central Asian countries except for Tajikistan, where there was a war. So the general secretary of the Kazakh Communist Party, he just changed his job title and he became president of uh, independent Kazakhstan. And then he just remained in that position until 2019. Nursultan Nazarbayev, he was re-elected in 2015 uh, with more than 97% of the votes. So that's quite similar to the percentage which Kim Jong-un in, in North Korea is re-elected with. How did it become a dictatorship? I think one can really blame the Soviet heritage that they did not have any traditions for being a democracy. And then the politicians that continued ruling Kazakhstan, they had been formed, uh, they had been educated in the Soviet system. So they just continued uh, following this authoritarian system. And there was a large migration of ethnic Russians to Kazakhstan during the Soviet Union. Did these two groups ever successfully integrate as a nation? Oh, well, that's another good question. So most of the Russians emigrated to Kazakhstan in the 1950s during the so-called Virgin Land campaigns. Khrushchev, like Stalin before him, just looked on the map and saw all this land and imagined that, oh, wow, here we can feed the whole Soviet Union. So then ethnic Russians were kind of exported to Kazakhstan to start modern efficient farming. And this was no success at all, but many of the Russians remained. So at some point in the 1950s, there were more Russians than ethnic Kazakhs in Kazakhstan. Now that number has changed um, because ethnic Kazakhs are having more children than the Russians. So, but still, the ethnic Russian population in Kazakhstan is about 20%. And uh, Russian is, as a language, also still quite dominating. So you, if you go to Kazakhstan, you will also find a lot of ethnic Kazakhs who have uh, Russian as their mother tongue. But there are not only Russians in uh, Kazakhstan. Because of the deportations of Stalin in the 1930s and 40s, you will find more than 100 different ethnic groups and nationalities in Kazakhstan. Because in the Chechen, English, Crimean Tatars, uh, Germans, they moved them from from Western Russia, and then Kazakhstan was ideal because you have you had all this empty land and almost no people. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content, and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv the events calendar is filling up here at intelligence squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on-stage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. And speaking of this young population, the population is getting younger in Kazakhstan. They moved the capital city from Almaty to Astana, which has now been renamed um, Nur Sultan after the leader of 20 years, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. And it's my understanding that when they moved this capital city, they also encouraged lots of young couples to come to Astana. So it was a very, very young city. And it's also incredibly close to the border. I was wondering if you've been to this city and if you could describe what it's like. It's a planned city and it sounds unlike anything else. Yes, it's not a very pleasant place. Um, it is a very planned city and it's not cozy like Almaty, but it's at times quite impressive because uh, Kazakhstan is a very rich country. They have gas, oil, a lot of minerals. So you can really see this wealth when you go to Astana or Nur Sultan, as it is called now, in honor of the first president. It's a big city, so you, you really are dependent on a car. There is no metro. There are these endless traffic jams, so you should never leave for a meeting at the last minute. And it is still expanding. They have this long time plan for uh, Nur Sultan, so it's not done yet. It's still being created, so to speak. And it is very interesting that, as you mentioned, that when they decided to move the capital, that they decided to move it to the north. The Kazakh regime will not say so, but uh, it makes sense that they wanted to have more presence uh, in the north, close to the Russian border. And also what they have done, Kazakh authorities, I mean, no one in Kazakhstan will admit that they are afraid of the Russians. But what they have done, especially after the annexation of Crimea, is that they have, with economic incentives, they have made ethnic Kazakhs move not only to Astana, Nur Sultan, but to the border areas which are dominated by ethnic Russians. 
I want to talk about Georgia now, which from what I understand, this was one of your favorite countries. Am I am I right to say that or <laughs> have I imposed a bias there? <laughs> no, ab- absolutely. It's it's my, one of my favorite countries and definitely my favorite country along the Russian border. And also we've spoken a lot about the history of these countries and that does make up a large portion of your book, but your book is also travel writing, which is really beautiful at times. It really takes you, transports you to these different different places. And a bit that stood out for me in Georgia was when you started talking about Kachapore. I was wondering if you could just explain what that is for people who might not know, because it's really important for anyone who ever tries it. They love it. Uh, yes. And I encountered this um, Khachapuri uh, issue already at the border crossing from Azerbaijan. When, you know, when the border guards start asking you questions, you get kind of nervous because I mean, what if they don't let me pass? They do have a lot of power. And then the border guard, he started asking me uh, if I like Georgian food. And I said, yes, yes, very much so. So, mm-hmm. but what kind of Georgian food? We have a lot of different food. And then like, the only name of any Georgian food food I could remember. I mean, Georgian is a very difficult language. That was Khachapuri. So I said, oh, I was so happy that I could remember that name. So, I love Khachapuri, I said. And then he looked at me, not happy at all with my answer. Well, we have a lot of different Khachapuri. So which kind do you like? And then he started listing them. And I will not try to uh, repeat that. Uh, so Khachapuri is basically um, a bread, very often filled with a Georgian salty cheese, and sometimes they top that with an egg. And to make it even more filling, they might add some butter. So really, a hachapuri, it's a meal in itself. It is very filling. It's very much a meal, but they don't treat it like a meal. It'll, no, no, no. It's like a bread basket to them. <laughs> it's a small appetizer, and then you'll have a stew, and then bean course, and then more meat. But it is incredible. So you wrote about Georgia if it weren't for their neighbours, Georgians would probably be the happiest people in the world. Could you explain what you mean by this? Yes, because the Georgians are very happy people. They love celebrating. They love having guests. They love drinking wine, which um, they do a lot. Uh, but then they it's a small country and they are surrounded by very big neighbours, Turkey, um, was the Persian Empire, and then the Russian Empire. So it's kind of stuck between these empires and they have had a lot of problems with all of them. And now lately, uh, mostly with their neighbour in the north. And since the 1990s, uh, Russia has controlled, has effectively controlled 20% of uh, Georgian territory by controlling the breakaway republics of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And on Russian border disputes, one of Russia's most infamous border disputes is ongoing as we speak in Ukraine. But when you went to Ukraine, you were there just after Crimea had been annexed. So I was just wondering what the atmosphere was like. Would you say there was any sense that a full country war was coming in just a few years? I studied Russian in Odessa about 15 years ago. And then 10 years after having studied Russian in Odessa, I came back to do research for the border. And then I I really came back to a very different country. I came back to a country that was at war. And even in, in Kiev or in Odessa, far away from where the fighting was ongoing, you could feel the war. There were photos of dead soldiers everywhere. And also to me, it seemed like Ukraine was a lot more united. Uh, when I was studying 
in Odessa in 2006, so just uh, shortly after the Orange Revolution. And I remember how my Russian teacher, she was talking to me about the Orange Revolution and telling me that uh, these the demonstrators, they were given money from the CIA to participate in the demonstrations. So um, think all up until the annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbass, Ukraine was kind of divided between East and West. But what happened after the war broke out was that Ukraine very rapidly became a united country and didn't matter if people lived in East or West or spoke Ukrainian or Russian, they felt Ukrainians and, and Russia was the enemy. Before, when I was uh, giving talks about the border, I used to always, I always used to remind the audience that as I'm talking now and as you are sitting there listening to me, there is a war going on in Europe. And that war started in, in 2014. And when I visited Donetsk in 2016, more than 10,000 people had been killed already. And I remember very vividly as we crossed the border to the youngest breakaway republic in the world that we could hear shooting not very far away. So that conflict never, it never became a frozen conflict like many people predicted it would become. And kind of what we are seeing now, the full-scale invasion, it's in many ways, it's the continuation of this war that started eight years ago. So the people living in Donetsk on the eastern border of Ukraine, when you were there, were they in any way pro-Russian? Uh, they were, definitely. Um, the people that I met, but I visited the military academy where this uh, new government was educating 16, 17 year olds to become soldiers, defenders of this breakaway republic. So this was basically a brainwashing machine. I visited schools where the teachers had been instructed that now there was a new subject that they had to teach and that was called patriotism. The only problem was that no one really knew what to teach because uh, there was no curriculum and no one really knew what they should say about uh, the breakaway Republic of Donetsk because everything was so new. The city of Donetsk was probably one of the most clean, pleasant places I had visited in Ukraine, ironically, because before the war broke out, it was one of the wealthiest uh, cities in Ukraine. And a lot of oligarchs were living there and investing in hotels, um, football stadiums, etc. So in many ways, it just seemed like a very normal city and people would go to restaurants and they would celebrate a Women's Day and etc. But it was also a very empty city. There was no traffic jams whatsoever, very few people walking on the streets. And this is because already in 2016, more than 2 million people had fled the war in eastern Ukraine. Most of them had then fled to other parts of Ukraine. That's why it's a bit difficult to answer your question. Yes, a lot of the people I met in Donetsk, they were pro-Russians, but most of them had already left. The Maidan revolution that was in 2014, that saw the ousting of President Yanukovych, his old house that has now been renamed the Museum of Corruption. You visited the Museum of Corruption and I was wondering if you could explain what that was like. <laughs> It's a strange place, the house of, or the palace of uh, Yanukovych, and it is surrounded by this huge park. So you can rent these kind of golf cars to go around because it's too big if you want to see everything. You can't walk. And then the house. So if you have seen the, the Servant of the People, parts of the... The first episodes are actually filmed inside this house where this new president, is, um, which is Zelensky, is, is going to live. And then you can get an idea of the 
area, which is, I would say, um, it's a lot of gold, marble, all these expensive things that dictators and um, corrupt politicians seem to enjoy so much. Yeah, just to recap, Servant of the People, that is the TV program that Vladimir Zelensky was the star of while he was running for the president of Ukraine. One of the most openly pro-Russian neighbouring Russian countries, would it be fair to say, is Belarus. They have an open border with Russia, meaning there are guards there, but you can very easily just pass between the two. It's not an official border in the sense that we would usually think of. So when you were in Belarus, you met Stanislav Shushkevich. Could you tell us about who he is and what his story was? Yes, so Stanislav Shushkevich, he was the first leader of independent Belarus and he kind of became leader of, of the parliament by accident because this was after the failed August coup and in the parliament of Belarus they just tried to find someone who was neutral. So they chose him because he didn't belong to a party and he was by education, he was a physicist, so not really a politician. And then Belarus became independent uh, in 1991. And he was part of that. So I was so happy to meet him uh, because meeting Stanislav Shushkevich, that was like meeting history with a big age. Uh, he, he died uh, last month, sadly, uh, but he was still well uh, when I met him. And then he lived in a modest apartment in the outskirts of Minsk. And that's where I met him and his wife, Irina. At the beginning of December in 1991, Shushkevich, he invited his uh, colleagues, Boris Yeltsin, was the president of the of Russia, and Leonid Kravchuk, the president of Ukraine, he invited them to his dacha in the forests of Western Belarus. And he told me that their aim was to discuss gas deliveries, so practical issues. Uh, but then very soon, these three gentlemen started discussing the future or the non-existent future of the Soviet Union. Because at this point, even if this was after the referendum in Ukraine, one week earlier, where Ukrainians uh, voted an overwhelmingly majority to quit the Soviet Union, still Gorbachev, he had not really given up on saving the union some way or the other. But um, the gentlemen on the dacha in Belarus, they decided or agreed that the Soviet Union is history. And then without informing Gorbachev, uh, they called Washington and informed of their decision. So they basically dissoluted the union in this dacha and they wrote the death sentence uh, of the Soviet Union. And then a few weeks later, officially, the Soviet Union didn't exist any longer. But then I remember asking Shushkevich when I met him, it was in 2016, and I asked him, so uh, when did you understand that the Soviet Union was history? And I have pondered so much uh, about his uh, answer the last couple of months, because he told me that the Soviet Union is still not history. Uh, it is. It continues to live in people's minds. Yeah, I was just about to ask you about this exchange because that really stood out for me when I read it. For me, how I took that was in Russia, especially amongst the older generations, there is a real nostalgia for the Soviet Union. Things were better then, things just worked then. In your journey, would you say you experienced that in the neighboring countries or is this nostalgia unique to Russia? No, it's not at all unique. And I've, I have encountered this nostalgia at the most bizarre places, like in Semipalatinsk, the test site area of nuclear bombs, 
uh, where I mean, the workers who were living there, the people who were living there, the children who were living there, they were not informed of the danger. They were part of the experiment to see how these explosions would affect the health of the people living there. And even there in um, Semipalatinsk and close to the test site where there was a small village which now was almost abandoned, I met some old people sitting there drinking, playing cards. And even they, they were nostalgic about the Soviet Union. They missed the Soviet Union. And another weird place where I counted nostalgia and I had not expected to encounter it, that was at the former Aral Sea in Uzbekistan. The Aral Sea was the fourth biggest lake in the world. Uh, but then the Soviet authorities decided that they would take the water that was being led to the lake and they would take that water and use it to water the cotton fields instead. And cotton needs a lot of water. So deliberately, they emptied uh, one of the biggest lakes in the world and the Aral Sea disappeared and that was planned. And now the places which used to live uh, at the shore of the Aral Sea, they are just filled with dust. It's very dangerous to live. They're very unhealthy. And of course, there is no industry any longer. No one can fish because there is no sea any longer. And even there, uh, the old people that I met there, they, they were very nostalgic about the, the disappearance of the Soviet Union. And they said to me, oh, those were the times. And I asked them, but, but how can you miss the Soviet Union? It's because of the Soviet Union that, that you don't have a lake any longer. And then they said, well... As long as the Soviet Union existed, uh, the fish factory was still working because when the water disappeared, they just started shipping them frozen fish from Murmansk. I can't believe that. The Aral Sea, seeing pictures of it does put it into perspective that it's, it was a sea, essentially, and now it's a desert. It's just cracked, dried land. You can't really live there. And it's one of these Soviet projects that just, I don't know if they ever thought it was going to work, but they didn't care about the people who were living there but still, still they yearn for those days. We're running a bit short on time, so I'm going to skip a few countries, but also people should read the book. We can't give them, we can't give them all 14 countries. So to finish, it seems appropriate that as a Norwegian, I need to ask you, what is Norway's position on, on sharing a border with Russia? The um, Russian-Norwegian border is also um, not a very long border. It's 196 kilometers and it's in the very north of Norway. So now I'm sitting in Oslo and I'm 2000 kilometers away from the Russian border. So sitting in Oslo, that border feels very distant. But it is a very special border because it, I mean, it's probably one of the most peaceful borders in the whole world. And definitely it is the most peaceful among the Russian borders. So uh, of those 14 neighboring countries, Norway is the only neighbor of Russia that has never been at war with Russia or never been uh, invaded or occupied by Russia. And this is not because Norwegians are very special people, of course we are, but it has um, to do with geography. So I mentioned that this border is in the very north. And then before Murmansk was founded in 1916, and simultaneously it was connected with St. Petersburg by railway. So before that, the fastest way to reach the Kola Peninsula and this border area was by boat from St. Petersburg and around the whole Scandinavian peninsula. So it was just too bothersome to invade Norway. And we are very happy about that today, because what we see today is that those countries that are most at risk are the countries that um, were former a part of the Russian Empire. 
So kind of the, the empire is not dead and it wants its former territory back. Thank you, Erica. That was Erica Fatland. Her book, The Border, is now available from Quercus. It's travel writing, it's historical, but also something that maybe we didn't touch on so much today, but really stands out in the book is the interactions that you have, the kindness of a lot of the people that you meet along the way. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I've been Catherine Hughes. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month, ad-free listening and early access too. Currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.